it's easy to look at a 10-month-old Labrador and say, well, that's elbow dysplasia. We know how to manage it. You can either do a bit of surgery or we can manage it conservatively. But there's an awful lot more to know about the prognosis and clients need to be informed of where their pet is on that spectrum of severity and what they can expect for the future. Welcome to the Vet Times podcast, a concise, topical, clinical and informative podcast from the people at Vet Times. Elbow dysplasia is a cause of lameness in young dogs and osteoarthritis in older ones, with medial compartment disease one step in canine OA progression. For this Vet Times podcast, I'm joined by Phil Vitter, who will be discussing the conditions, diagnosis and all the surgical options. Welcome, Phil. How are things with you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Right, so medial compartment disease, elbow dysplasia, what are we talking about in terms of the four different conditions and what's the prevalence in dogs? Elbow dysplasia, it's not a particularly useful term actually in that it's sort of a historical blanket term for developmental conditions um, that cause arthritis in the elbow. So there's there's an international elbow working group that meets every few years and come up with this classification of what they're going to include as part of elbow dysplasia. And so at the moment, we have these four conditions, which are medial coronoid disease, incongruity, which is typically radio ulnar incongruity. So the radius is a bit too long or the radius is a bit too short at the level of the elbow joint. And then we've got osteochondrosis, which is a developmental condition of the articular cartilage. And in the elbow, it occurs on the medial aspect of the humeral condyle. And then we have ununited anconeal process. And that of the four is very uncommon, actually. Whereas radioulnar incongruity we see with some frequency and we see it alongside medial coronoid disease as well. Um, it's somewhat controversial, the incongruity, because we don't really know how much incongruity is normal and how much is abnormal. Um, in addition, diagnosing incongruity is a little difficult, depending on how you've got the elbow positioned when you're taking a CT scan or a plain radiograph. You can get the appearance of incongruity, which may or may not be pathological. The medial condylar osteochondrosis is also pretty uncommon. Whereas medial coronoid disease, that's very common. And so if you're a Labrador, you're doing very well not to have medial coronoid disease. And so most of them have it. And, and then there's a sort of a spectrum of how severe it is, how severe the fragmentation is, how severe the wear of the medial compartment is. And that's what we're going to talk about in a second with medial compartment disease. Um, but all of these conditions essentially result in elbow arthritis. And the majority of them, the arthritis is worse in the medial compartment than in the lateral compartment. And so that's why we, we then focus on medial compartment disease specifically. So what can you tell us then about diagnosis and surgical options? For diagnosis, when we're looking at elbow dysplasia, what we'd find is a history of fallen lameness. And most of these dogs are six, nine, 12, maybe 15 months old. And their condition, the elbow dysplasia itself, is causing their problem. Whereas later on, we're talking about the osteoarthritis as secondary when we're talking about medial compartment disease. So with, with elbow dysplasia specifically, we're talking about relatively young dogs around the time of skeletal maturity. Um, they'll have a history of sort of waxing and waning lameness. And sometimes it's even shifting from, from one limb to the other. So it's not necessarily a continuous lameness. And it's often not that severe. So that would be the history. The examination findings would be lameness affecting one limb and, and all of these conditions. A lot of them are, well, particularly coronoid disease can be bilateral. A lot of the time you have more severe signs on one limb than the other. And so you'll see four limb lameness. That's the nodding as they're walking. And, and, and these, are, these are things that clients recognize as well. Uh, and then when we examine them, we find that they've got elbow effusions, uh, four limb uh, muscle atrophy, 
resentment sometimes to extension of the elbow particularly so these are the these are the examination findings that we'll we'll have uh, and then we'll go on to imaging and so the imaging will involve plain radiography often first and we see that we get sclerosis of the bone of the ulna deep to the coronoid process so we, we can see that in a radiograph we can perceive that and obviously if we've got ununited ankyneal process we can see that in a plain radiograph and it's quite easy to diagnose Osteochondrosis is harder to diagnose in a plain radiograph, but it is possible. And then the incongruity, sometimes we can see, although, as I said before, that's a, it's somewhat controversial whether, whether we can assess incongruity sensitively and, and effectively in a plain radiograph. Uh, so these are the findings that we have with examination. Then we go on to radiography. And then typically we'll use CT to confirm the extent of medial coronoid process fragmentation. Um, whether it's there or not, sometimes it's just sclerosis rather than fragmentation. And so uh, so those are the stages we go through. We Typically with the elbow, we don't need to go to MRI, but CT is very useful. Right, okay. So I think there's a connection between this and osteoarthritis developing later in life. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's absolutely. I mean, that for me is part of the definition of elbow dysplasia is that it's a developmental condition of the elbow, which results in osteoarthritis. Right. Okay, so have there been lots of surgical and technical advances for treating and managing this, would you say? Yeah, so once you then have wear of the medial compartment and loss of cartilage, and that's essentially what osteoarthritis is, it's just the cartilage breaking down in the medial compartment, then we have a number of surgical techniques for dealing with this. So we have our surgery for the elbow dysplasia that we do in the younger dogs. And so we can talk about those first. For coronoid disease, for example, we have fragment removal or what's done more recently is, uh, or in the last 15, 20 years is subtotal coronoidectomy. So we're trying to take away quite a lot of the coronoid process a little bit deep to where the fragmentation is. So we take the fragment and then some bone deep to that as well. And the idea of that is that we're potentially minimizing the chance of further fragmentation in future. And we're reducing the impact and the wear between the coronoid process and the opposing part of the humerus. So arthroscopic fragment removal plus or minus subtotal coronoidectomy would be the most common surgical procedure just for coronoid disease in the younger dog. With the incongruity, we can adjust the fit of the elbow with a dynamic osteotomy of the ulna. And that's, uh, again, it's controversial at what level we should be cutting the ulna. So in younger dogs, we can cut the ulna more distally because the ligament between the radius and the ulna, the interosseous ligament is a little more lax. Cutting more distally reduces the morbidity. But in an older dog, if we cut more distally, then that interosseous ligament is quite stiff. And then we don't get so much movement between the proximal um, segment of the ulna and the radius. And so we have dynamic ulnar osteotomy for the incongruent elbow. For ununited ankyneal process, we have a, a few surgical treatments again, and this again is somewhat controversial. So we try and fix the ankyneal process down if we can. And CT is useful for evaluating whether that ankyneal process is actually going to fit back into place or not. Quite often, these ankyneal processes are quite remodeled um, and won't reduce back into position. But if they do, we can lag screw them back into position. And often as part of that treatment, we'll also release the ulna and do a dynamic ulnar osteotomy um, simply to redistribute the load across the joint and, and minimize it. Because part of the etiology, we think, is that the ankyneal process is under a bit of pressure because of incongruity again. And so by dealing with incongruity and at the same time as lag screwing that ankyneal process back down, we think we get a better outcome. And it has been shown in the, in the literature that we do get more of these ankyneal processes healing into position if we've released the ulna as well. 
And then for osteochondrosis, the treatment, as for other joints, essentially uh, uh, osteostixis, removal of the fragment, if, there is a, if, if there's a flap, the osteochondral flap, um, and then osteostixis is essentially just trying to free up some of the bone, making holes into the subchondral plate so that we get some bleeding into the area and we get a, we get a fibrocartilage plug filling the, filling the defect. Yeah. As I said, most of these elbow dysplasia conditions, all, all four of them will essentially lead on to a, a situation of elbow osteoarthritis, but it always is worse in the medial compartment. And so we see a lot of dogs that present with osteoarthritis in their elbow joints where the majority of the osteoarthritis, the majority of the cartilage where is focused in the medial compartment. And so we can diagnose this not with plain radiography and not really with CT, but we diagnose this with arthroscopy. So we look inside these joints and we'll see that the medial compartment, so this means the, um, the coronoid process and the surface of the medial part of the humeral condyle that opposes the coronoid process, the cartilage will be worn away and pink and knobbly and gnarly. Whereas when we look deeper to the lateral compartment, the radial head and the lateral part of the humeral condyle. The cartilage is in good nick, white, shiny, smooth still. And so these are the dogs that we then diagnose with medial compartment disease. And treating that is complicated, but it, ha it has been suggested as something that we should be trying to do because treating um, more severe elbow osteoarthritis is much harder. And so if we have something that will treat this medial compartment disease before we get to a point of more severe elbow arthritis, that's sort of seen as a bit of a holy grail. And so we have treatments that are designed essentially to shift load off the medial compartment onto the lateral compartment. Um, and, and there are, so there are, there are plated ulnar osteotomies that have been recommended. There are plated humeral osteotomies that have been recommended. And these sorts of procedures are essentially stolen from a situation in the in the human world where we get medial compartment in disease in our knees and then if you had that 30 years ago uh, you would have had a high tibial osteotomy the idea being that you can you can shift around the, the the essentially the tibial plateau that we play with in dogs for cruciate disease but we can we can change the frontal alignment of the tibial plateau in people and shift loading off the medial compartment onto the lateral compartment and get an improvement in the in the clinical signs of osteoarthritis and hopefully slow the rate of osteoarthritis in the joint as well. And so we've sort of stolen this idea and we've come up with some of these sort of techniques that we use in dogs. Increasingly, it's apparent that the high tibial osteotomy is not that commonly utilized in the human field anymore as knee replacements become better and better. And so you're more likely just to get a, 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 a knee replacement these days than to have a high tibial osteotomy. And unfortunately, I think that speaks volumes about how well a medial technique designed to shift loading from one side to another in the joint can work. And I, I suspect that it, it probably just means that they don't work all that well. And the literature is sort of bearing that out for the various techniques that we have for the medial compartment as well in the canine elbow, where we're trying to shift loading off the medial compartment onto the lateral compartment perhaps we're not biomechanically achieving what we thought we might be so the literature is starting to show this and in addition we're not getting the clinical outcomes that perhaps we thought we might though there is some literature to suggest that we can achieve good outcomes and so the literature at the moment is a little un uncertain about whether we should be doing these or not Mm. I suppose like anything, this is going to be constantly changing, hopefully, and there's going to be more of it coming down the tracks. Absolutely. There's, there, there is. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, I wonder if I've been a little bit pessimistic there. 
the outcomes are variable and there's certainly an awful lot of investment in developing new techniques for dealing with medial compartment disease. And I, and I think we're getting more and more understanding. You know, every time a new technique comes out, we understand more as more is published about that technique. And, and so all of this is worthy addition to the literature. But increasingly, the bigger companies like Kion, for example, are investing in partial elbow replacement systems rather than in systems that will shift loading off the medial compartment onto the lateral compartment. Really, really interesting area, isn't it? And I should just point out at this point that you've got an article you've written that's coming out in that Times in issue four. But a really interesting area, isn't it? It is an interesting area. It's an area that, to some extent, requires a lot of reading and a lot of keeping up to date because the pattern changes from month to month and from year to year. There's an awful lot going on with the elbow. And it's easy to look at a 10-month-old Labrador and say, well, that's elbow dysplasia. We know how to manage it. You can either do a bit of surgery or we can manage it conservatively. But there's an awful lot more to know about the prognosis. And clients need to be informed of where their pet is on that spectrum of severity and what they can expect for the future. And so as we learn more and more as data is published about them, we can draw a better picture for clients about how their dogs are going to do over the years. Yeah, excellent stuff. Well, it's terrific. Thank you so much for joining us, Phil. As I say, there is an article coming out in that times and there'll be links uh, on our show notes to that. But for now, thank you for joining us on the podcast and hopefully speak to you again soon. Many thanks, Paul. All the best. That's it for Vet Times podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.